I love the mountains here. I never get tired of looking at the mountains. But there are times when the storm clouds roll in and you can't see them. Uh, my house is only a few miles from here, and, but on, on, on days where there's uh, a storm, uh, sometimes the mountains are completely obscured. And I kind of feel like that this morning, that there's these mountains of the glory and majesty of God, and that what I'm hoping, what I, what I want to pray happens is that God will use his word to blow away the clouds that we might see his glory this morning. So will you just pray with me that that, that happens here today? Father, we, we beg the prayer that May, Moses prayed thousands of years ago. Show me your glory. God, I pray that you would do that today, that your word in Old and New Testament, God, would blow away the clouds that obscure our vision of you and that we would behold the infinite beauty, the infinite worth, the indescribable glory of God, that we would want you and be satisfied in you and experience the joy that only you can give. Father, lead us to the rock that is higher than us. Lead us into your presence through your spoken word. Feed our souls, Lord. May we be so satisfied on you today that the things of this earth grow strangely dim. Help me to explain your word faithfully and understandably. If I have misinterpreted scripture, I pray that that would be discerned and seen and rejected, but the things that are of you, the things that are a right explanation of your word, you would burn and press upon our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Comparisons reveal value. They reveal the worth of things. Let, let me illustrate. Okay, this is audience participation. What is better, a bag of gravel or a bag of gold? It's going to... All right, let's try another one here. Maybe we'll, maybe, we'll get uni- maybe we'll get unity on this next one. What is better, a trip to the Grand Canyon or a trip to the Davis County Landfill? Thank you. Students, this one is for you especially. What is better, a day off from school or a day of standardized testing? Okay, this is an important one. Which is better, a Chick-fil-A sandwich or a chicken sandwich from some other establishment? I don't think I heard a unanimous answer on that, Pastor Ron. So you have, as discipleship pastor, I'm entrusting you to take care of this. Sin in the camp. Yes. Well, make sure that our discipleship plan corrects that misconception. Well, as we continue our journey through Psalm 84, 
this psalm makes a powerful comparison. And it's one that has profound implications for our lives. Psalm 84 is a reflection on God's temple, of being at God's temple. It divides neatly into three sections with the Hebrew word selah, uh, making those section boundaries. The first and the third section reflect on the joy of being at the temple in the presence of God. The second section seems to be a reflection upon the pilgrimage to the temple. And this, this author or authors of this psalm are excited about the temple. They are exuberant, just can't contain themselves with their joy in the temple. Now, why is that? Because in the Old Covenant, the temple, we, like, we serve a God who is he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. He's not, yet space does not contain him. He is not, he doesn't have, he's not a physical God. God is spirit, Jesus said in John 4. Yet he's everywhere at once. And, but in the old covenant, under the old covenant, the temple was that place that God chose to manifest his presence in a special way. So it's not that he wasn't elsewhere around the world in the universe, but he manifested his presence in a special way. But, if you're thinking this morning, if you have an inquisitive mind, you might say, you know, but, wait a second, the Jerusalem temple is long gone. The Romans raised that thing to the ground in AD 70. It's completely gone. You've got the, when we, if you've heard of the weeping wall in Jerusalem, that's simply the foundational wall that like, the supports the temple mount. The temple is completely gone. Jesus' prophecy of not one uh, stone will be on top of another was fulfilled. So, how does a psalm that delights in the joy of a building that hasn't existed for almost 2,000 years, how does that apply to us today? How is that practical to us today? Well, I hope by the time we get to the end of this psalm together, you will know the answer to that. The big idea in this psalm is to delight in God's presence, to desire God's presence. Two things you've got to walk away with from today. Delight in God's presence. Desire God's presence. Delight in God's presence. Desire God's presence. Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Yahweh of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. The psalmist begins with this just exuberant expression. How lovely is your dwelling place. My, my soul longs for the courts of Yahweh. That's where I want to be. 
And so he's, not, he's apparently not there yet. And so you, maybe you see the progression in this psalm of he's, he's longing to go there, then he actually does go there, and then he delights in being there. There's perhaps a physical progression in the three parts of this psalm. He longs to be in God's presence. He longs for the courts of Yahweh. His, his heart and his flesh sing for joy to the living God. And as he, as he thinks about the temple, he, he pictures maybe a, a sparrow building its nest somewhere, maybe, maybe literally at the altar, maybe at, in one of the stone um, little nooks and crannies of the temple. And I, I kind of wonder, why, why is that? He reflects on a sparrow being at God's temple. And, and I could be wrong, but I think, for, for what I think he, in, he means by that, is he sees in the sparrow's nest at the temple the tender, loving care of God. Think about how Jesus referred to sparrows. Sparrows in the Bible seem to be an animal of insignificance. Jesus said in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? So in other words, these, these, are, these are not expensive animals. If you're going to go buy a couple sparrows, you can, get, you can sell two of them for a penny. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so maybe what the psalmist is reflecting on is this beautiful picture of if, if even a sparrow, this tiny bird of in, that's inconsequential, I didn't say that right. It's insignificant. This insignificant bird nesting at the temple. If even that sparrow can find a home there. Uh, in the words of the ESV study Bible, then the humble and the faithful Israelite need not fear that God will turn him away. The temple, your weakness, your smallness, your insignificance is no barrier to you coming to the living God. It's not the rich, the proud, the famous, the important people that are welcome at the temple. All are welcome by faith. And he closes this section. He says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. He, three times in the psalm, he pronounces uh, uh, blessing. What, what does it mean to be blessed? And this is the first one. He says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. He's probably referring to the priests who are, I mean, nobody actually lived inside the temple. But if you're a, if you're a priest, you're continually in the temple offering incense and sacrifices and uh, getting to go into God's presence. And he just thinks, wow, you know, that's, that is what it would be to be blessed, is to be a priest in the house of God. Not, not, it's not like, oh, I really wish I had that, I was like that rich person or I had all that, those cattle. His idea, when he thinks about, man, what would it be to be blessed? It would be blessed if I got to be in God's temple all the time. You know, I just, I go there on pilgrimage from time to time, but man, blessed are those who get to be in God's house ever singing his praise. That's one of the three pronouncements of blessing. We can learn something from that. We'll come back to that. But the second pronouncement of blessing immediately follows. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. He talks about those who have highways in their hearts. And you might be like, what on 
earth are you think, talking about? Like now, some of you aren't old enough to remember this. I just, when I think of highways, I immediately think of Highway to Heaven. You guys remember that old show? That has nothing to do with the message this morning. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, so any, anyway, whose hearts are the highways to Zion? So there's this, literally I get this, yeah, what do you mean roads? There's roads in your heart? I mean, like, are we talking about, you know, your... Uh, Aorta, or what are we talking about here? You know, the, are we talking about the circulatory system? No, he's, when he's talking about these highways in the heart, I think, so this is a reference to the roads that would lead to Zion. Remember, Zion is another, that's not Zion National Park, uh, though that's a great place to go. Zion is another way of referring to Jerusalem. And so he's, he's talking about these roads that literally lead you to Jerusalem. And I think what he means by talking about having roads in your heart to Zion and he's saying, like, these are people who don't just go to Jerusalem. You might remember, maybe, maybe you're not aware, that in the Old Covenant, the faithful Israelite was required to go to Zion, to go to Jerusalem, three times a year. Uh, the three times a year that they were required to go to Jerusalem. And to have the, the road to Zion in your heart, I think, indicates that it's not that just like, oh, okay, I've got to do this. It's my duty to go to Zion. This is saying, like, I long for this. This is, I love going to Zion. It's in my heart to go to Zion. I can't wait till the next time I get to go. It's not I got to go, I get to go. They want to go to the temple. It's delight, not duty. Um, you know, a lot of you uh, are in the military or were in the military, and, and think about this, this, uh, the delight versus duty. In, in the military, in your military service, some of you made great sacrifices uh, for the sake of our freedom. And, and, and we talk about the language of duty in the military, of do your duty. But is it not true, veterans, that your duty really came from a place of delight? Why, why did you serve your country? Was it simply because you had to? Or was it because you believed in the American experiment? You believed in what the Constitution says and stands for? You believed in having a, a, a land of freedom, that you loved freedom, you loved this land, you loved the, the citizens of this land, and so you served, you fulfilled your duty because you delighted in your country. Or maybe, maybe another way to think about it, uh, duty versus delight. As a husband, is it my duty to kiss my wife? It is. But do I kiss my wife because it's my duty? Or do I kiss her because I love kissing her? It's great. I'm, 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 I'm setting myself up for success here, husbands. Like, so later on I can say to my wife, honey, I cannot be a hypocrite. I've got to practice what I preach. And so... Looking forward to this afternoon. <laughs> you know, kids, that's one of, just one of the things you need to know, because this is like Hollywood spending a billion dollars to lie to you. Like, one of the things my wife and I f discovered, uh, I think we knew it before we got married, but we believed it even more after we got married, is that marriage is the place to be. Like, Hollywood glamorizes, oh, being, you know, you know 22 and single, that's the high life. And we're like, that's, you got nothing. That's married life is the place to be. That is uh, a place of sweetness and joy. So, so anyway, all that to say, yes, he has to go to Jerusalem, but he wants to go to Jerusalem because he delights in God. It's not just duty, it's delight. He talks about going through this valley of Baca, and we don't really know what that means, uh, if that is an actual place. 
we've, we've lost that uh, geographic knowledge. Uh, it might be kind of allegorical that he's referring to. Uh, it's possible that this, and there's debate even on what this Hebrew word means. It could be referring to a certain type of plant, maybe a dry place, a desert place. It could mean uh, suffering. It could mean valley of suffering. Regardless of that, it's some sort of, it's not a place you want to be. What, whatever the sense of valley of Baca is, whether it's a dry place or a place of suffering or affliction, bottom line, it's not where you want to go. It's not where you want to be. But yet he has to pass through it in pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The trip to Zion is not, you know, it's not first class on the airplane. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult journey. There's hardship involved. And he says, yet in the midst of that, make it a place of springs. And I, and I think that ties in with God's provision. God sustains him on pilgrimage. He talks about going from strength to strength. And so God sustains him. God brings him through this journey all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple. Well, now we read the third and final section of this psalm. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of, the wicked, of, of wickedness. Sorry, I memorized this in the NIV many years ago. So I'm quoting that. Um, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is this amazing comparison. First off, he says, God, there's better is one day in your courts. Just one day in the presence of God is better than a thousand elsewhere. One day is better than a thousand elsewhere. When he says that I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, there's, there is debate on what that means. One possibility is that, you know, as a, if he's not a priest, he can't go all the way into the temple, right? He can't go into the Holy of Holies. He can't go into the holy place. The, the door of the temple Daniel Estes comments, he's at the door of the temple, which as far as lay people were allowed to go in, in contrast to the priests and Levites who reside in the house of the Lord. But he's saying, look, you know what? Even if I'm not a priest, even if I I can't go all the way in, even getting to the door, the threshold of God's house, that is better than dwelling in the tents of the wicked. It's better just to be on the outskirts of God's temple than to be inside the tents of the wicked. I don't know, um, I, I didn't see anybody else make this observation, but it's always struck me, that contrast as well, that you have the house of the Lord versus the tents of the wicked. And I wonder if there's something, if the psalmist intended some sort of reference to the, you know, that, that God is eternal, that God, God lasts Yet the pleasures of sin, what, is, what does Scripture call them? The fleeting pleasures of sin, that, that sin doesn't last. The pleasures of, of sin are temporary, they're fleeting, they won't stick with you. But, but God's, God's people approach a house where the wicked have a tent. I don't know if he intended that or not, but that's, that's something that strikes me as I read this. Daniel Estes makes another helpful comment. He says, worship is such a joy to him that even standing at the threshold of the temple, which was as close as a layperson in Israel could go, to the sac- go into the sacred space, 
is preferable to being accepted in the tents to receive the hospitality of the wicked. God's presence is better than all the wealth and all the riches and all the pleasures that money could buy. This brings up a really important, really important point for us, church. You will, you will either delight in God or in something else. There's not a neutral ground here. You will either delight in God or in something else. So point number one, and it's long, fight temptation with the expulsive power of the gospel. I need to give you a minute to write that down, don't I? Fight temptation with the expulsive power of the gospel. If you get this, this is a really powerful weapon to add into your arsenal as you fight temptation daily. We all fight temptation in different forms. So temptation is seized to you except what is common to man, Scripture says. Whatever you're wrestling with, you are not unique. It's a temptation that is common to mankind. A couple hundred years ago, there was a man named Thomas Chalmers. I hope I'm saying his name right. Thomas Chalmers. And he wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of the New Affection. And that's kind of the, what I, I borrow from this morning. So what, let's talk about a little science experiment here. Maybe this is good for our engineers in our midst, which is, I know, several of you. So if you have this jar, got this jar. Now, we know that it's not empty, right? There's air in this jar. Nitrogen and oxygen and carbon dioxide, maybe some Utah pollen. Um, we got this jar. It's not empty. It's got air in it. Now, imagine you have a limitless resources to, your, to invest in your scientific laboratory. You can, whatever equipment you want to buy or purchase to uh, fulfill this experiment, you can, you can purchase. Money is no object. So if, if you have limitless money at your disposal, how will you get the air out of this jar? You can add, what, okay, one of our engineers here. Okay, so we could, we could, we could buy or make a vacuum pump. Uh, yeah, thanks, Marty. Um, appreciate that. <clears throat> okay, I just want to point out that the engineer has been beat by the non-engineer. So, yeah, we could, we could make a vacuum pump, right, and like try to suck all the air out, and that would, and you'd have, and just think how hard that would be to get every last bit of air out of this jar if you, through a vacuum. And how easily air would seep back in, right? We'd have to be continually pumping the air out, or we'd have to, you know, seal it and then make sure that, that there's no puncture to that or not. Or, and that would be expensive, and that'd be a lot of work, and vacuums make a lot of noise. So you could vacuum the air out, or you could just pour in water. And I have now effectively removed the air from the jar, haven't I? Okay. So, kids, you can now tell your parents you've met your science requirement for the week in schooling, um, or at least get extra credit for that. should count for extra credit for something. The gospel is like that. Guys, if you get this, then you get Psalm 84. And this will change your life. This will help you in your fight against temptation. 
Christianity is not a list of rules. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. If all that you have is a list of don'ts, you end up with a vacuum in the human heart. And you will try to fill that in some shape or form. That's why people who have religion, I'm not surprised at all when I hear about people who are very religious yet are committing some sort of gross sin secretly. That they fall off into some kind of terrible immorality in secret. That does not surprise me at all because religion, apart from God, is a vacuum. And you will try to fill your heart with something else. It's no surprise to me that Utah is a religious state yet has the number one rate of online pornography usage in the nation. Christianity is not a vacuum pump. Christianity is a filling and that the joy of God, the joy of knowing God, so fills your heart that it is expulsive. It pushes out lesser desires. It pushes out appetites for sin because you have the joy of the Lord. God is better than what the wicked can offer. In modern day language, better is one day in God's presence than being able to go to Las Vegas and have a limitless tab to spend and do whatever I want. God is better than that. Christians are not the losers walking around while the world has a really good time. Christians are the ones who say, that's all you got? Those worldly pleasures? I got that beat. It's, it's me as a married guy saying, look, that's, <laughs> being married, that's better than that young single guy who thinks he's living the party life. That's great. No, no, no. Married life is better. Love for God, delight in God will push out the things of this world. Jan, First John, John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the eyes, sorry, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You fight temptation with the expulsive power of the gospel. The gospel is not a call to rules, it is a call to a delight in knowing the one true infinite God. Another comment before we, we move on here. Note the, uh, the corporate aspect of worship. So he's going to the, the temple, right, to worship. Daniel Estes again helpfully comments, It is evident in Psalm 84 that real worship begins with a heart that feels at home with God and that attitude, and that attitude works itself out to engage the whole person, mind, heart, hands, and voice. This worship, however, is centered at the temple in Jerusalem. So it is not intended to be a matter of personal piety alone. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is a vital communal dimension of worship that must not be neglected. In corporate worship, the people of God gather together with their hearts directed toward God. And their shared appreciation of Him overflows into verbal public praise. As they worship, the people of the Lord are together, together at home with Him. Christianity is personal, but it is not private. And there's a joy that comes in corporate worship. 
All right, but so I asked at the beginning, so what? Charles, remember, the temple is gone. It's been destroyed. Kids, you remember what year that happened? 8070. I hope that was a kid who said that. Um, if not, it's okay. You still get a gold star. So what's the application for us today? Do we need to, oh, I read Psalm 84. Let's rebuild the temple. No. Uh, Paul says in, in Acts 17, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So when we talk about how does Psalm 84 apply to our lives today, we need to understand the temple in four phases in a historical context. First off, temple number one. I'm going to try to visualize this here. Temple number one, we have the Jerusalem temple. First, of course, it was the tabernacle, the tent that Moses was created under Moses, ran around the desert, then they built, Solomon built the temple. Oh, that's, that's the temple number one, the Jerusalem temple. So we said, it's gone, it's destroyed. But then we have temple number two. Temple number two is you and me. Like each New Testament, each new covenant believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Point number two, delight in being a temple. Point number two, delight in being a temple. Point number two, delight in being a temple. One of the mind-blowing things, we were talking about this in uh, my, my theology class this morning, is the Holy Spirit is God. He's fully God. And so if you are now a dwelling place where the infinite, almighty God dwells in you, if you're a follower of Christ... That's amazing. And we should rejoice in that. But there's a third temple. So temple number one, Jerusalem. Temple number two, you, me, under the new covenant. Temple number three, the church, corporately, is a temple. Ephesians 2 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church, the people of God, is a temple. Point number three, seek out God's people as temple. Point number three, seek out God's people as temple. Why do I come to church on Sundays? Because I want to come to the house of the Lord. As we sang this morning, there's joy in the house of the Lord. But by that, I don't mean this physical structure. I'm very thankful for this physical structure. Isn't it great to be inside and have air conditioning and have you know, screens and sound systems, oh, it's all a great blessing. It's a tremendous blessing. But the house of the Lord is us. And I want to come to worship. I want to come to corporate gatherings because I want to be in the house of the Lord. There's a fourth temple. It's the final temple. Revelation 21, 22 is as 
all things are reaching their consummation. The Apostle John saw this. And I saw no temple in the city. This is the New Jerusalem. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There is a fourth and final temple. And what makes heaven heaven is being in the very presence of God. Point number four, long for the final temple. Long for the final temple. We as a people of God, we live in that that tension of the already but not yet. Already Christ has come, already we have tremendous blessings and outpouring of the Spirit, yet we haven't reached the end yet. There is more to come. The best, God is saving the best for last. And we need to long for that. And as a, as a people of God, we are supposed to be longing for the return of Christ. 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. I love that description of Christians. Christians are people who have loved the appearing of Jesus. We are longing for his return. There's a beautiful song by um, Christian Stanfield. came out several years ago, Even So Come. And he talks about like a bride longing for her groom. May we be at church longing for you. See, if you're not longing... For Jesus, if you're not longing for the final temple, if there's not a, a yearning in you for something better than this, you're too content. You're too content. You're too satisfied on things down here. You're loving the world too much. And sometimes God has to shake us free. Sometimes afflictions are the hidden blessing of God that come into our lives because we're like, I don't really want affliction. I don't like affliction. I don't like suffering. But suffering sometimes is God's very kind way of shaking us loose from loving this world too much and longing for heaven and leads us out of an idolatrous love of the things of this world to a love for him. Four temples. Well, that was a lot, wasn't it? I think like we covered a lot of ground. Our worship team is going to come forward. They're going to give us a moment to reflect on Psalm 84. I feel like that's a lot. We just want to give you a moment. What is God saying to you today through this beautiful psalm? When it comes to comparisons, for you, is God better? Are you delighting in God right now? Are you longing for Jesus' return? Are you fighting daily temptations with these truths? When temptation comes, can you say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Do you just have religion? Or do you know God like this? Let's pray. God, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I pray that you would lead us to the place where that, that is the cry of our hearts. In Jesus' name.